Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is 1956, episode 1.2. It is the second episode of our first part. In other words, it's the second episode looking at life after Stalin in the Soviet Union. I hope you guys are enjoying this series. 1956, the eventful year, has been really, really fun to research. I've learned so much about this era and I can't wait to share it all with you. So if you would like to access the full story, remember it's only a click away. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails now and you'll be able to access over 30 episodes of this series. Everything from life after Stalin that we're looking at here to the Suez Crisis, which is still to come. 1956 will take us through 2018, on to 2019, in fact. That's how much content is here, guys. It's a bargain. For only $5 a month, you too can access all of this history. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. But maybe it's not for you. Maybe you don't really want to access all of this history. Maybe you have enough podcasts in your life as it is. That is fine. All I ask is that, hey, maybe leave a review saying that you enjoyed these two episodes you listened to. So that iTunes in particular knows to place this series or these teaser episodes for this series relatively high up on its charts. Other than that, guys, I hope you enjoy the second episode here, because it's pretty darn interesting. Thanks, and enjoy. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.2. Last time, we were introduced to a fascinating, but also troubled era, as we saw what happened after Stalin's death and the kind of legacy that he left behind. Only a personality as complex and flawed as Stalin's could have left so many problems behind for his several successors to fix, but one of these problems had to do with leadership, and it is this issue that we're going to examine in more detail today. How did Nikita Khrushchev manage to rise above his rivals, some of whom, to take Molotov for instance, had a far more public profile and could trace their service back several years? But then, Khrushchev could also trace his service back several years. He had always been there in the background, biding his time and preparing for the right moment to stake his claim to the top position. Now that Stalin was dead, more opportunities presented themselves, and Khrushchev was, as we have seen, a member of the important post-Stalin circle, the collective leadership, by July 1953, when Lavrenti Beria, one of the most well-connected men of this circle, was thrown under the bus. It is to this world that we take you then, as Khrushchev tries to establish himself as leader of the party. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Bullets ripped into the large tractor factory wall as the Red Army officer struggled to reload his rifle with his frost-bitten hands. Overhead, a light snow was falling, and it was destined to get much colder over the next few weeks. The defence seemed hopeless, yet those above the common soldier knew, largely because they had urged a counter-attack, that all was not lost. Reinforcements were on the way, and General Zhukov was planning one of the most striking and devastating manoeuvres of the Second World War. If Nikita Khrushchev ever faltered in his resolve, he would always take solace from these memories at Stalingrad. He was immensely proud of his service in that pivotal battle, even while the record of what he actually did there is predictably cloudy. Surviving and then thriving in his position of commissar over 1942-43, and then commanding men during the Battle of Kursk, made up for his earlier failures at Kharkov the previous year. These military battles, Khrushchev believed, prepared him well for the political battles to come. He was ten years Stalin's junior, and if examined retrospectively, when Khrushchev was appointed the Communist Party's first secretary in September 1953, it can seem as though the succession was an intentional, even natural one. Yet, there was nothing natural about Stalin's method of selecting a successor, since first and foremost, he neglected to actually select one preferring instead to surround himself with figures who he appeared to favour, while those in this circle appreciated that, at any moment, Stalin could take it all away. In 1948, he had appointed Khrushchev's peer, Georgi Malenkov, to the position of secretariat, while Khrushchev himself had been called to Moscow from Kiev in 1949 to serve on that same body. In the 19th Party Congress in 1952, Malenkov gave the report of the General Committee and Khrushchev gave the next most important report, one on changes in the party statute. Yet the iron will of the Man of Steel remained integral to the survival of both. When Stalin says dance, a wise man dances, remembered Khrushchev, in reference to an occasion when Stalin asked the near 60-year-old Nikita to dance the Hopak, a traditional Ukrainian folk dance. Khrushchev had already grown accustomed to napping before the wearisome dinners that Stalin held in his later years in place of any formal Politburo meetings, where Stalin would treat his guests to unsubtitled cowboy westerns stolen from the Americans, a favourite of Joseph Stalin's, which must have seemed unintelligible to those present. Things went badly for those who dozed off at Stalin's table, Khrushchev noted, as if in reference to a specific incident where a peer had dozed off and was not seen again. The historian Myron Rush, writing in the early 1960s, captured the dilemma of Khrushchev and his successors by presenting the problem in stark terms. Nobody could be sure of where one stood or precisely how far up the pecking order one was during Stalin's lifetime, thanks to the inherent vagueness of the Soviet political setup. Rush wrote, Does the supreme authority reside in the government's 
council of ministers, or in organs of the party. If the party is sovereign, which of its bodies has the power of decision? The presidium or the secretariat? Or is it the central committee, which meets briefly every few months, or the party congress, which meets every few years? Soviet history gives no single answer. It has been different at different times. The question of supreme authority is the fundamental issue of Soviet politics, and has been fought over by its chief figures. Uncertainty as to the decisive authority may ultimately imperil the regime, but only in the absence of an established dictator, that is, during a succession crisis, is the problem acute. This set of questions, of course, played into what we looked at last time, where Khrushchev and his peers were plagued by the disconcerting problems of the state apparatus, and by the lack of security which even the highest office seemed to offer. The insecurities of the many were balanced against the comparative security of the very few, and so those figures who could command a measure of loyalty from Soviet institutions were looked upon with immense suspicion. Leverenti Beria was one such figure who seemed to hold too much power for his own good. He held sway over the Ministry for Internal Affairs, and was known to use his secret police as quasi-diplomats in the different capitals, as his bank of patrons that owed their career and station to Lavrenti Beria only grew. If this was worrying for his competitive peers, what really seemed to have forced their hand was the eruption of revolt in East Berlin, an event which cauterized feelings about any notions of liberalism or appeasement in Moscow. We only touched on the East Berlin revolt briefly in the last episode, because it is easy to get bogged down in this stage of the narrative. To understand how Beria, and thus one of the major rivals to the leadership, was eliminated, we must first look at what Beria did in the months before the East Berlin Revolt, to have appeared so personally responsible for it. To some historians, Beria was the early face of what was called the Thaw in the terminology of Soviet reform. Yet Beria's fall was not due to his approval for the Thaw, but for other reasons. Beria took upon himself the responsibility for two acts, two unforgivable crimes in the eyes of the diehards and their associates. First of all, he humiliated the political police when he exposed its practices in connection with the Doctor's Plot. The Doctor's Plot was a farcical scheme concocted by Stalin to do away with the non-existent threats to his life in the last months of his life. Second, Beria offended the great Russian chauvinism when he, an ethnic Georgian, called for an end to Russification in Georgia, in the Ukraine and in Central Asia. Both of these acts, the former more explicitly than the latter, had ostensibly been endorsed by the party leaders, but because he was Minister of the Interior, Beria was identified with these acts more closely than anybody else. No wonder that some of the old hands of the political police, resentfully straining to cover their sacred right to extort confessions from their victims, and the great Russian chauvinists, joined hands to wreak vengeance on him. With the events in East Berlin, they would have their chance. Everything at once counted against Beria, from his connections and influence to his public approval of policies that other people had approved in private. The historian Isaac Deutscher followed this series of events, and concluded on the reaction to the East Berlin Revolt, which sealed Beria's fate. Deutscher wrote, The ruling group saw that the new policy was indeed becoming a source of weakness for Russia, it plunged the whole of Eastern Europe into turmoil, it caused a rapid deterioration in Russia's bargaining position, and it threatened to rob Russia of the fruits of her victory in the Second World War without any compensating gains. 
Thus, even the men of the centre, who had hitherto backed the new policy, had to recognise the need for a change in tone and perhaps in tactics, even if they were not at all inclined to give up the quest for peaceful coexistence. Finding themselves under deadly fire from the extreme groups, they were all too anxious to disclaim responsibility for the appeasement of recent months, and to throw the blame for it on someone else. In short, Lavrenti Beria was the perfect scapegoat for what had occurred in Berlin, and the added bonus in removing him was that he and his connected web of favours and privileged individuals could now all be collectively blacklisted as a means of preventing any reactions from the secret police or any such service that Beria had controlled. But with Beria gone, the power vacuum grew still larger, and thus more opportunities opened up for Khrushchev after summer 1953, when Beria and his memory was officially condemned by the party in its plenum of the first week of July. While the actual act of giving rebellious satellites what they wanted would be done away with, and tanks would replace concessions in these regions, closer to home the increasing attention given to reforms did continue. In a speech to the Supreme Soviet on the 8th of August, 1953, Georgi Malenkov spoke at length about the need to liberalise. Malenkov's strategy was to make use of the Soviet Union's swollen bureaucracy, to separate it from the Communist Party's influence, and then to use it to conduct state business independently of the Communist Party. This tactic seems to have been adopted by Milenkov because his major rival, Khrushchev, was accumulating influence within the party and would indeed be made first secretary of the Communist Party in September. Milenkov thus attempted to outmaneuver his political rival, but in such a way as to disguise his true intentions. By making a show of the need for collective leadership, Milenkov could both delay any efforts on the part of his peers to make a grab for all the spoils, and he could also monopolise his control over the most important facets of the state's governing apparatus in the meantime. As chairman of the Council of Ministers, yet another empty title which essentially meant a guy who holds a good bit of power, Malenkov remained the public face of much of the state's functions, which tied in well with his beefing up of the bureaucracy and his reduction in power of the Communist Party's controls. That two camps were emerging had been made clear barely a fortnight after Stalin's death, when Milenkov had been persuaded to relinquish his position on the 14th of March 1953 as Secretary of the Central Committee, which Khrushchev promptly filled. After this event, Milenkov doubled down in his efforts to spread his governmental influence, while Khrushchev sought to expand his influence within the party. What this looked like on the ground, guys, was a morass of competitive gestures, interceptions, strategic victories and public displays of affection for one or the other man's favoured class. For example, in that aforementioned speech on the 8th of August 1953, Milenkov had informed those present that the state was preparing to actively improve the lives of the peasant stock, who had been utterly ruined after Stalin's rule. Milenkov ordered taxes to be halved and peasant farming allotments to be increased, Acts which led the Ukrainian peasantry in particular to drink their village moonshine, toasting Milenkov's health as they did so. Khrushchev, the Ukrainian native, himself of peasant stock, or so he liked to imagine, never forgave Milenkov for usurping his role as spokesman for the Ukrainian peasantry. Milenkov had also announced that the Soviet Union had its own hydrogen bomb, which cast him as the leader of a nuclear power in the eyes of the public. 
Malenkov seemed for a time to be acting too fast for Khrushchev to catch up, though Khrushchev would announce the policy of virgin lands in Kazakhstan, a harebrained scheme as it turned out, which was designed in the first place to cultivate the previously untilled areas of Kazakh land and turn them into arable farmland, thereby removing any food shortages and reducing the pressure that was already pretty darn high on the peasantry. This policy was an abject failure in every sense, but when it was announced at first, Khrushchev was at least able to appear as an active policymaker with innovative ideas. When Khrushchev was named first secretary in September 1953, the race was plainly on between these two figures to accumulate enough power and influence in their chosen sphere. Malenkov, as we saw, was building up a rapport with the bureaucrats, the industrial officials, and the artistic elites. While Khrushchev, arguably more sensibly, adopted the party as his vehicle, establishing full command over its structures and, as Malenkov had feared, filling Beria's old job as head of the secret police with one of his firm allies. It soon became clear who had the stronger ticket. Khrushchev was able to use the party's different branches in the various provinces and cities to cut off Georgi Malenkov from any useful information, to push him out of the limelight where he could be forgotten, and to blackmail him if all else failed. Before long, this plan seemed to have had its desired effect. Khrushchev acquired a dominant position atop the Presidium, and most importantly for the party's image, became more active in representing it in several speeches and plenums over late 1953 and early 54. International affairs provided Khrushchev with additional opportunities. Churchill had proposed a summit between the great powers in May 1953, and in the years it would take to organise such a meeting, Khrushchev could build up a case against Malenkov, accumulate power for himself and for his allies, and then use the summit as a litmus test for his allies to demonstrate their loyalty. It was clear as 1954 progressed that Malenkov had been outmaneuvered, and the greater the balance against him, the less likely it was that his allies would stay the course, lest they end up on the wrong side. Khrushchev was never as fluid or skillful as he was during this period of his career ever again. Well, he did not display a great grasp of international affairs, and while, as we'll see, he wasn't able to discern which way the domestic wind was blowing within the Soviet Union, he did know how the Soviet Union's power bases and confusing list of titles worked. Don't ask me how. At the core of this ability to understand the Soviet Union's critical power bases was Khrushchev's talent for reading people that he came in contact with, and for impressing them with his affability and earthiness where Malenkov's formal style could push potential allies away. Of course, Khrushchev was not always charming, and he was perfectly capable of rudeness, crudeness, and losing his temper at the best of times, which he would do with disastrous effect throughout the later 1950s. At this critical moment in his career, though, Khrushchev managed to collect himself and turn his energies into fulfilling his ambition. Like I said, the opportunity presented by Churchill's summit was too good for Khrushchev to pass up, because in the course of selecting who should represent the Soviet Union out of the collective leadership, it was decided that Malenkov was too soft to represent Moscow and should not be permitted to go. This argument, developed over 1954 as Malenkov's power base was chipped away at, enabled Khrushchev to place the nail in his rival's career. On the 22nd of January 1955, Khrushchev and the other assembled Presidium members approved the dismissal of Malenkov from his post as Chairman of the Council of Ministers. Malenkov's duties had virtually disappeared, and Khrushchev had won. Eager to develop his explanation for Malenkov's lack of backbone even further, 
Khrushchev revealed to the party plenum gathered in late January 1955 that Malenkov had approved of the criminal barriers scheme to hand East Germany over to the Allies. We had to replace Malenkov, Khrushchev bluntly noted in his memoirs. The talks in Geneva required another kind of person. The shredding of Malenkov's record was not personal then, just a matter of business. Business, indeed, would take a while to get back to normal, and Khrushchev had by no means removed all sources of opposition to his regime. Members of the old guard, including Molotov, remained both inherently ambitious and utterly opposed to Khrushchev's principles of reform. What Molotov regarded as weakness and pandering to the foreign and domestic beggars, Khrushchev regarded as essential if the Soviet Union was to progress and fix its myriad of problems and contradictions. Perhaps because he was bitter at the very rough process which had been required before he could properly feel like something of a leader. Perhaps he blamed Stalin for this process and believed that the late dictator should have done more to pave the way for an easy succession. Perhaps this bitterness compelled him to blame not just the system Stalin had created, but also the very person of Stalin and the Soviet attitude to Stalin as well. As ever with the history of events and figures in the Soviet Union and elsewhere to be honest, Landmark moments are explained by several variables, some of which do not always make sense. Few landmark moments stand out as so stark or as significant in the post-Stalin era of the Soviet Union than Khrushchev's decision to deliver his secret speech in February 1956, but we are not quite there just yet. Khrushchev was not yet at the stage where he felt confident in making any kind of great changes to the state. In other words, the de-Stalinization would not be possible until Nikita felt in a strong enough position to launch such a stinging attack on his predecessor, not least because some of Stalin's old cronies were still kicking around, the most significant of whom was undoubtedly Molotov. Molotov's career and his history with Stalin read like a personal history of some of the worst stages of the Second World War and some of the most triumphant, ill-advised initiatives of the post-war world. Deeply conservative in the Soviet sense, Molotov was seriously averse to any notions of displaying weakness to the West. He was convinced that only by strong-arming the Allies would those same Allies be willing to listen to reason. Molotov thus had a leading role in shaping Stalinism's international face, characterised by cynicism and realism, and resembled most infamously perhaps in the Ribbentrop-Molotov non-aggression pact. Molotov's attitude towards Stalin remained one of post-mortem loyalty and healthy doses of public reverence, even if his relationship with the Man of Steel was far from consistently rosy. Molotov had fallen out of favour with Stalin in the years before his death, largely because Molotov had proved unable to wrest any kind of German concessions from the Allies, and the Berlin blockade's failure was also a convenient blip which Stalin could blame on someone else. At the party plenum of October 1952, Stalin had publicly denounced both Molotov and his peer in the Foreign Affairs Ministry, Anastas Mikoyan, a key architect in the first place of the Sino-Soviet alliance. Molotov and Mikoyan, Stalin said, were in it together. They were in cahoots with the West and they had spied for the Americans. In addition, Stalin's inherent anti-Semitism exploded in the late 1940s as his final purges were underway. Between the events of the Holocaust and the rigorous image of genocide associated with the Nazis, it suited Stalin to cover up the fact that he was, by his nature, an anti-Semite. 
when the Red Army liberated Auschwitz and the public outcry demonised the Nazi regime on a scale never before imagined possible, it suited Stalin to act as though the USSR was a suitable place for persecuted Jews to travel and work. What was more, Stalin had initially regarded Israel as a potentially useful bastion for socialism in the Middle East, and in this he built upon the Soviet Union's own favourable record towards the Jews in the early 1920s and 30s. Yet Stalin, as we said, was an anti-Semite at his core, and when it became clear that Israel was turning towards the United States, which incidentally was what Stalin's advisers warned would happen, the Man of Steel changed his tune. Suddenly, all Jews were suspicious, and their cosmopolitanism, as it was put, was to be persecuted. At the centre of this campaign may have been Stalin's personal feelings and natural suspicions, as well as his anger at Israel's pivoting towards Washington. However, because plain anti-Semitism wouldn't do, the very existence of Israel was used against those thousands of Jews living in the Soviet Union. Jews, it was said, could not be trusted because it was not certain where their loyalties actually lay. Soviet citizens, you see, are loyal to Moscow and Stalin above all, whereas Jews, well, they have the option of Israel, don't they? So they could just sell out the Soviet Union at any point if they really wanted to. To drive the point home, Stalin emphasised the cosmopolitanism of the Jews and the fact that many had spent great portions of their lives in the West and were natural travellers open to all influences. This has been a massive tangent as you can see, but the point was to illustrate one of the other reasons why Molotov and Stalin seemed to fall out in the final years of the latter's reign. Molotov, as it happened, was married to a Jew. That the anti-Semitic purges of the party and bureaucracy ended upon Stalin's death, along with several other reforms, would have been great news to Molotov and his family. Yet it was those other reforms which Molotov found that he could not countenance. Even while he had been immensely aggrieved by Stalin's newfound passion for hunting down Jews, Molotov still believed in much of the Stalinist message, and the Stalinist message at its core was an avowal of those things that made a state strong. Military technology, industrialism, nuclear weapons programs, and a criticism of things that made a state weak. Liberalisation of the media, detente with foreign powers, and a reduction in military spending, to take a few examples. One may have expected that with a new leader in charge and Stalin's paranoid madness absent, Molotov's ability to breathe easier would have, well, put him in a better mood. Yet, for a variety of reasons, Molotov and Khrushchev never saw eye to eye. This may have been for reasons of ambition, where Molotov coveted and may even have expected to succeed Stalin, or it may have been because, as the saying goes, Khrushchev simply rubbed Molotov the wrong way. Molotov was aghast at Khrushchev for his personality as much as for his leadership style. Nikita's ability to warm up those he liked and to utterly disgust those he did not meant that most people felt very black and white about Nikita, and it also meant that he was very much easier to read than Stalin had been. Above all though, the reason for Molotov's falling out with Khrushchev came from his fundamental disagreement with him about how to proceed with Soviet policy, both foreign and domestic. In several foreign policy respects, Molotov believed that Khrushchev was prone to giving too much and taking too little. Like he had done with Malenkov though, Khrushchev outmaneuvered Molotov by taking advantage of the opportunities to publicly slight him throughout 1955. 
When the Austrian government approached Moscow to arrange a deal whereby the Soviets would remove their troops and the Austrians would refrain from joining NATO, Khrushchev jumped at the chance. Yet Molotov insisted that, We cannot afford to withdraw Soviet troops from Austria, since it would actually mean placing Austria in the hands of the Americans and weakening our position in Central and South Central Europe. The majority of the party presidium agreed with Khrushchev though, and in his triumph, the party first secretary took the opportunity to publicly shake his finger at Molotov and his peers during a reception. From now on, Molotov and his boys would have to take their instructions from the party leadership. If the Austrian incident was a blow to Molotov, then Khrushchev's decision to engage in a rapprochement with Yugoslavia was the final straw. Molotov could not support the repairing of relations with Josip Tito, the man who had publicly spurned Stalin and who had never apologised for his rudeness towards Moscow in the past. What was more, meeting the Yugoslavs where they were sent a message to all states that wished to resist Soviet power. Simply wait for a regime change and the Soviet messengers will come running. Molotov insisted that it was better to leave Yugoslavia floating loosely in the wind and to pressure Tito through military exercises and trade restrictions, as Belgrade was frozen out of the USSR's portion of Europe. In Khrushchev's mind, though, it made good strategic sense to apologise, not for Soviet behaviour, but for the behaviour of Stalin, and the latter's vehement anti-Tito campaign, where everyone Stalin did not like was charged with Titoist deviations. Khrushchev already seemed unnervingly comfortable with blaming Stalin for pieces of history, and Molotov believed that such an act was unhealthy for the sake of the regime's stability. As it happened, Khrushchev believed it ridiculous that Yugoslavia, the only state in Europe to embrace communism without Soviet help, did not now see Moscow as its natural ally. Yugoslavia's bust-up with the USSR had only aided the West in Khrushchev's mind, and the United States in particular had furnished many millions of dollars of aid to Tito's regime. If this relationship with Washington was furthered, Khrushchev imagined that American bombers and soldiers would be walking through the streets of Belgrade before long. He had to counteract this state of affairs, for Soviet security if nothing else, and so a delegation, sans Molotov, travelled to Belgrade over late May 1955 to early June 1955. Molotov's time, as he could himself tell by the fact that he wasn't invited to join this delegation, was running out. The idea that Molotov may be on borrowed time was made even more clear between the 4th to the 12th of July, where a party plenum saw all delegates and oligarchs of the different Soviets across the USSR gather together for a frank discussion of Soviet foreign policy. Among the topics for debate was the recent deal with Austria, the Yugoslav situation, and the looming talks in Geneva with the British, French and Americans, the first such summit of its kind in a decade. Khrushchev was strikingly critical of Molotov and his foreign policy that he had adopted after 1945. Before long it became clear that the plenum had degenerated into an attack on Molotov, Molotov's relationship with Stalin and Molotov's failure to understand the new concerns of Soviet security. Khrushchev set off the first firework by blaming Molotov publicly for the split from Yugoslavia, and when challenged by Molotov, who reasonably asserted that Khrushchev had been a member of the Central Committee and had signed off on the denunciations of Tito as well, Khrushchev seemed to lose his cool. We started the Korean War, and even now still have things to sort out. Who needed that war? Khrushchev asked, in a piece of rhetoric 
so striking and so inflammatory that it was excluded from the printed versions of the plenum transcripts. Something to behold at this point in history, in other words just before the actual denunciation of Stalin on a semi-public forum was made, were the wealth of journal articles, academic journal articles that is, published in 1954 and 55 that tried to assess what would happen next in the Soviet Union now that Stalin was gone. Some of these tried to piece together as best as they could this series of events which led to Khrushchev's apparent rise, a task that is difficult even today. Others asked probing questions like, how new is the Kremlin's new line? In his concluding paragraph in an article published the month before the fateful speech in February 1956, one Harvard professor judged that the new Soviet group must decide whether it dare come to terms with the aspirations of its own people for peace, security, freedom and a better life. What the future choices of the new rulers will be, no man can know, but no one who has studied the party in which they have been schooled will likely assume that the convictions instilled by a lifetime of conditioning are easily discarded. Indeed, coming to terms with the past, and acknowledging, then dealing with, the past crimes or errors of the state, these were questions and issues which Khrushchev and his allies attempted to grapple with as the 20th Party Congress approached. It was under these circumstances that Khrushchev, Molotov, Zhukov and a few others travelled to Geneva. While Khrushchev and company still maintained the facade of collective leadership, it didn't take Eisenhower long to discern who the true boss of the Soviet delegation was. Khrushchev, the man who had been placed last on the list of expected successors to Stalin in spring 1953, Khrushchev, of all people, was the boss. Indeed, with these assaults on Molotov, the veteran statesman ceased to be an influence in foreign affairs. Khrushchev had destroyed the final obstacle to the creation of a policy and leadership style that he wanted. Now it remained to capitalise on that by bringing these barely veiled critiques of Stalin to their logical conclusion. Next time, we'll see what Khrushchev did with his newly acquired powers in February 1956. This of course means that the free samples have ended, guys. If you would like to know what happens next in this story, if you would like to know what exactly the reaction to the secret speech was and why Khrushchev decided to make it in the first place, then make sure to head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and become a diplomat. By doing so, you'll be able to access 1956, as well as past exclusive series, and more exclusive content to come. It's a great investment, I would really appreciate it, but for now I'd like to say thanks so much for listening, and I really hope you guys enjoyed this little teaser. Even if this is the only part of 1956 you listened to, I hope that you've enjoyed it, and I hope that you'll tell your friends about it, perhaps. And remember, as always, that when diplomacy fails, Well, this isn't technically When Diplomacy Fails, but When Diplomacy Fails Network, if you like, is where history thrives. So a huge thanks for listening and supporting us, my lovely patrons and history friends, and I'll hopefully be seeing you all, or at least most of you all, soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 